Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of Ichabod's House. I am Andy, here with my beautiful sister, Jen. Morning. Say good morning, Jen. There we go. Okay. Um, We have an exciting and sad episode. Exciting, I guess, because it's, I'm sure it's action-packed. Is this action-packed? It's I feel like it's action-packed. So it's going to be a good episode. We're going to continue with um, the story of Bridget Cleary. Also, we have some updates. So we have our upcoming trip to Falk, Arkansas for the Falk Monster Festival. But due to the recording schedule and the upcoming trip, no episodes on June 21st or the 28th. But we'll have more episodes that will drop the first week in July. Sounds good. We're very excited about that. Google and beyond. Do we have anything for that? I don't believe so. I don't believe so either. Ichabod's Nose. What do you got? I watched a movie called Sasquatch, S-A-S-Q-W-A-T-C-H, on, I think it was Prime, which was hilarious. It was done documentary style as a comedy. And it's just silly, silly, silly. Really good movie. So I recommend that one. And then I have been watching an oldie but a goodie forensic files. Oh, that is so good. I know. So I think, not there yet, but I think I'm getting really close to being able to commit a murder and get away with it. (laughs) More to come on that. Well, that's fantastic. I think I know how to commit one and get away with it. Well, I know how to commit one. I don't know. I think we all know how to commit murder. It's the getting away with it. It's the it's this phase I mean, two. Um, right. Well, I guess that would be phase three. Phase one is commit the murder. Phase two is dispose of the body fa- and right. evidence. Phase three is get away with it. And right. it's the phase two people fuck up on so that phase three never phase comes Phase three can't to be. happens. Yeah. Right. So yes. phase one, everybody can do phase one. Everybody can do phase one. We can all I commit murder. I quite accomplished knowing that I could do phase one in a very cryptic way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Icicles, because they melt. Your right. Weapon You're a creative away. person. You could totally do it. Yeah. But it's phase two that you need to perfect. Don't ignore phase two, people. Don't do right. it. Yes. Oh, I do have an update before okay. I do my Ichabod's nose. Okay. So... You know how you were saying as a a medical PSA of don't put that in there? Yes. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. I'll be really quick. I promise. Okay. So, and and it might be a little TMI, but my husband never listens to this podcast, so I don't really care. He uh, has started running, and so he needed to put a little cream on his bottom, a little preparation H, okay? So it was at night, and he thought, oh, it's kind of a little itchy down there. So he goes into the bathroom and I think that he was only using the night, the moonlight coming in from the window and he got out the preparation H and he put a little bit on his finger and he, you know, did what he had to do. And then like about five to 10 seconds later, he's like, oh, burns a little bit. And then he turned on the light while he used my toothpaste. So note to self, toothpaste is not a good substitute for preparation. That is your update. Don't put that in there. I have sympathetic (laughs) bottom puckering going on right now. All I could do was laugh. I said, I'm so sorry, but that's so funny. Oh, my God. Anyway, there's a watch out for you. Do not use toothpaste as hemorrhoidal cream. You probably should just keep them stored in completely. It's kind of like how with a gun, you keep the bullets in an entirely different location from the gun so that you can never accidentally load it. And Because that's phase two, people. You're going to fuck that up. So bullets should be 
someplace entirely different. <laughs> Toothpaste and hemorrhoid cream should be in different rooms, preferably on different floors if possible. Well, you know, in hindsight, it's better to get it mixed up that way than put the hemorrhoid cream in your mouth as toothpaste. Mm-hmm. That's true. Either way, I guess it's really bad. Anyway, you do. Have so my Ichabod's nose. I ha- I was just telling Jen this before we started recording that um, I always have a really good new stringy wet one, and then a old crusty one. My old crusty one is The Big Bang Theory. So my good. heart love that show. So good in every way. And then my new one, which might not be new because there's three seasons of it, but it's on. It's new to me. It's on Netflix, and it's called Homicide Hunter. Have you watched that? Mm-mm. It's really good. It's about this real-life detective in Colorado Springs. He solved over, like, 387 homicide cases. And they act out, like, you know, each more. And it's just real. It's a really good show. So, anyway, I've been watching that. And Chris has even watched it with me. (laughs) When he's capable of sitting. Okay. Welcome to Episode 26, everybody. We are talking about Bridget Cleary and her murder at the hands of her family. We left you guys last week on Thursday, March 14th, with Bridget being force-fed herbs and nearly being burned to death on the grate above the fireplace. Her dad at that time held her above it to keep her from getting burned. She has been sick for over 10 days now. Her husband, Michael Cleary, has had little to no sleep as he has been tending to his wife. Both Michael and Patrick Boland had already been, by this time, they'd already been to the doctor twice and back, and the doctor has come to visit Bridget. So that's where we're starting today. And Patrick Boland is the dad. Patrick Boland is Bridget's dad, yes. And he lives with them, and the cottage is rented in his name. Okay. All right. While in Fethard, Michael procured some herbs, which he gave to Bridget in the hopes that this would cure her. When that didn't work, he visited Dennis Ganey, a fairy doctor in Ballyvadley, for some additional herbs, which he and numerous relatives force-fed to Bridget on Thursday, March 14th, in an effort to get rid of the fairy. Okay, so during this, and this is where we had left it, during this confrontation, after everything has settled down, there's a knock on the door, and Michael Cleary got word that his father had died over in Killinall. Killinall, I don't know how you say that. Anyway, mm-hmm. and there was a wake going on, which is where everybody sits around all night, tells stories and reminisces. And so Michael didn't make any effort to leave the house to attend the wake. Instead, this just stressed him out more. This is a guy whose nerves are completely stretched to the limit and about to snap. Well, yeah, because if you really believe like he truly he must truly believe that his wife has been is a changeling and then you get word that your father has died. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's got to be yeah. He's, he's 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 not in any good mental state to make mm, any decisions right now. He's not. He's not not at all. In the cottage that Thursday about 24 hours before Bridget's death were the following people. Michael Cleary, who's her husband, Patrick Boland, her father, Mary Kennedy, who I believe is an aunt, right? Yeah, that's Patrick's Johan- sister. Okay, and Johanna Burke and her daughter, which are cousins, right? Johanna is Mary Kennedy's daughter. And so Kate, uh, Johanna and her daughter, Katie, Katie would be Mary's granddaughter then. Okay, so these are all relatives. All relatives. And Jack Dunn, I think, is an uncle. He's Patrick Boland's brother. And James Kennedy and Patrick Kennedy and William Kennedy, are they neighbors? 
They are Mary's sons. So they Mary's are, sons. Okay. they would be Johanna's brothers and Bridget's cousins, first cousins. Okay. And possibly Simpson or, oh, so William Kennedy, William Ahern and William Simpson and possibly Simpson's wife. So a lot of people. Yeah. A, a lot, lot of people. people in there. After the initial threat by the fire, the group believed they had been successful in purging the ferry. But Bridget was still sick. And Michael Cleary had just received news that his father was dead. So although a cleansing ritual had been performed, there was still significant stress in the house. Also, remember, the group had drenched her in urine and then put her on the floor by the fire. So Bridget was dirty and somewhat hysterical at this time. Mary Kennedy, William Simpson, and Johanna Burke all said that Bridget should have some dry clothes put on her. So they set about taking her to the bedroom and cleaning her up. Once she had been satisfactorily freshened, the men gathered once again around the bed to loom over her. I mean, how would you, I can't even imagine. There's nobody who can come around my bed except for immediate family. And even then, (laughs) I don't want anybody in my room when I'm sick. I I get that maybe society was different then, but having all these big men who had just held me down, force-fed me something, and and thrown urine on me from the chamber pot right. uh, over and over again. And now that now I finally get cleaned up, now they're all looming over me again. I'm just, ugh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Yeah. They have to be just out of their minds. I know. Oh, God. Okay. Michael pointed to each man standing <clears throat> around the bed and demanded that Bridget say whether or not she knew them. She said she did. And Thursday night ended with everyone returning home. The next morning, Friday, March 15th, Michael Cleary rose early and headed to Drangan to ask Father Ryan to perform a mass for Bridget. He explained to the father that Bridget had had a very bad night and would benefit from a mass being said, or at the very least, just being able to see the priest. So the priest rode over to the cottage by horseback, and he arrived at about 8.15. He said a mass over Bridget while there and gave her communion. This was in her bedroom, okay? So he goes into the bedroom where she's at. She's still in bed. She's still sick. She'd had a shitty night, and he gives her holy communion. He reported Bridget was nervous and excited, but coherent. Uh, He then asked Michael, hey, did you start giving Bridget the medicine the doctor left? Michael said he had lost faith in the doctor and had decided not to give Bridget any of the medication. So Johanna Burke was also back in the cottage at this time because she'd kind of been helping out Uh to take care of Bridget. And she reported this. She said this, she was not sensible. I know she did not swallow the Holy Communion. I saw her take it out. And that is why I say she had not the whole of her sense. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to take anything these people were giving me. And see, that speaks to fairy lore as well. So if someone, if you feel you've been abducted by fairies or you're in the presence of fairies, you don't, you're not supposed to take anything to eat or drink. So it's interesting that Bridget was refusing things because maybe she thought all these people were fairies. Who knows what she was thinking? We're never going to know, right? Well, yeah. Because. <laughs> right, we'll never know. <laughs> we don't have that opportunity. We don't have they any testimony her. from her. They silenced uh, her. We don't know what she was thinking, but it's interesting that she pulled the the wafer out of her mouth anyway. Yeah. Well, and two, if you have a cold, sometimes you don't like to eat or feel very good. So she might, it just might not have, 
you know, she might have felt she might have felt a little nauseous or something. Exactly. Who knows? Very logical explanation. But all her actions are highly suspect to her family. It's so sad. I yeah. So this is an important observation or accusation by Johanna Burke. The act of someone touching the sacrament, which is what those little communion wafers are called, was considered sacrilege. So the act of Bridget taking one from her mouth, actually touching it with her fingers and didn't swallow, implied something sinister, like she was a fairy. Mm-hmm. It, so she says, I saw her take it out. I saw her take the wafer out of her mouth. No one is allowed to touch those wafers. The priest does. The priest puts it in your mouth if you are taking Holy Communion. That's the Catholic way of doing things because it's considered sacred. So she physically, according to Johanna, touched it and pulled it out of her mouth, which would be considered like satanic almost. Right. Uh, so it it's likely Johanna was lying In hindsight, we all know she received immunity for turning Queen's evidence against everyone else involved in Bridget's death, but she also seemed to make some outlandish claims. It's also possible she didn't like Bridget. The supposition in the source book, The Burning of Bridget Cleary, is that Johanna was jealous of her cousin. Bridget was younger than she was, but made her own money, was successful. And wasn't she, wasn't it said that she was very attractive as well? She was very attractive. And so Johanna, during the trial, would talk about the duties she performed out of obligation, but out of no real sense of caring for Bridget at all. Okay. So it's possible, it's likely, in fact, she was lying about seeing Bridget do this and probably trying to say, point out, We really all thought she was a fairy. That's why she's dead. Justifying their actions, I think, is what she was trying to do. For sure. So that same morning, Michael Cleary gave Johanna a shilling for the new milk she had brought over the night before. Okay? So remember, they brought new milk, and that was from the Burke's farm. And they put those herbs in it. So they he paid her for that. After the priest left... And during a moment when Michael was out of the room, Bridget asked if Michael had paid for the milk. Kind of like, hey, did he pay you for what you brought over last night? Johanna said, yeah, he did. So Bridget asked to see the coin, which she took from Johanna, rubbed on her own thigh, and then handed back. Curiouser and curiouser. So let's talk about that for a minute. This was another sort of thing we wouldn't think anything about, but in the context of date, time, and location for Bridget, it is another really big deal and one help that helps seal her fate. Giving a coin as payment was traditional, and sometimes in the act of paying someone, a person would take the coin and rub it on their leg to rub any luck off of it. This is likely what Bridget was doing. But when Johanna told Michael of this action, he got really upset and confronted Bridget about it. So what was Michael upset about? It was possible he believed that Bridget was making a pishog. I think that's how you say that, which is a charm meant to bring harm to someone. What? I'm so glad that was your word. (laughs) (laughs) So a pishog, it's a charm meant to bring harm to someone. It's done by making a nest of hay or straw in which is placed a piece of rotting meat or rotten eggs or a used sanitary napkin. 
like someone had menstruated on, okay? Then it's hidden or buried on the land of the person one wishes to use it against. The logic of the belief is that as it decays, so will the good luck of the farmer. Okay, and I'll say something else about that. Pishog, as I was reading, comes from, it's derived from the slang word for vulva in Gaelic or whatever. So it's derived from that. So Michael seemed to be implying that Bridget had rubbed the coin in her crotch and not on her thigh. So if you think of the act of rubbing the coin, so you you rub the coin, I want to keep the luck from this coin for me, but here's your payment. There's nothing sinister about that. It would be tradition, something no one would think anything of. I'm giving this coin away, going to keep the luck from it. Probably what Bridget was doing Michael seems to think she rubbed it in her crotch as a form of a curse for Johanna or for him. He doesn't say. But most likely he thinks it was to bring bad luck to Johanna. There you go. Lord. Okay. So even though Bridget was being accused of sacrilege and of pishoggery, she still had visitors. William Uh Simpson stopped by for a few minutes to see how she was. He stayed only a few minutes and left. He would not see her alive again. A local plowman, a big and strong guy named Tom Smith, came to visit her. Plowmen were often called upon to visit the sick, especially women, in the midst of a difficult birth. Plowmen would put the woman on a blanket and use it as a sort of a sling to roll the woman back and forth in an effort to turn a breech baby or reposition it within the womb. Fairies, believe it or not, and their possible influence on a household were believed to be disrupted by plowmen especially if they came straight from the plow to the house. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Tom's visit was a welcome one. He heard of Bridget's illness and came straight from the field to say hello. He said this about seeing Bridget that morning. I'm trying to think of an accent here. (laughs) Sound big and strong because he's a big dude. Her face was pale and washy. I asked her how she was and I couldn't understand the reply. Very good. Tom Smythe stayed only about 10 minutes in the house, but Jack Dunn was there by now, and Johanna also remained, as did Michael Cleary and Patrick Boland. Okay, so there's still people in the house the whole time taking care of her. And remember also, Michael's dad is dead, so there's likely funeral things happening, and he's got this wake he's not at for his father. So there's still this stress and stuff going on, and Bridget's still sick but doing a little bit better. So the day passed, and late that afternoon, Johanna Burke left for her house to get more milk, apparently at the request of Bridget. Milk, they didn't have refrigeration, so milk wasn't kept around a lot. So she said, hey, I I think I could drink some milk now. Go get some. On the way, she met her mother. Johanna met her mother, Mary Kennedy, and Katie, who's Johanna's daughter. They were walking up the hill toward the house with another neighbor, Johanna Mira. Katie turned around and left with Johanna Burke, and Johanna Mira and Mary Kennedy continued up the hill to the cottage, where they hung out with Bridget until the milk came back. So now we've got two more people. Uh, Johanna and Katie went to get the milk and then return, and that's when things sort of go sideways. Okay, so at the trial, Mary, Mary Kennedy said this. When Johanna Burke came with the milk, herself and the child, she left the bottle of milk on the window, and Bridget Cleary said, Will you give me a sup of it? Michael Cleary was sitting down, and he said he would not, that she could take a drink of water. I said, What nourishment is a sup of water for the poor creature? 
So he took the bottle of milk off the window and brought it away and did not give her a tint of it. No matter, Bridgie, said I. Hanny will give you a sup by and by. So she said no more. But she said to Hanny, if I had Tom Smythe and David Hogan, they'd settle what's between me and Mick. So she called she called Michael Mick. Oh, okay. And um, that so that was a nickname, and he called her Bridgie. So now there is some speculation that maybe Michael Cleary was just being a dick, trying to control mm-hmm. what Bridget eats or drinks, but there was also the possibility that he was worried about letting Bridget drink the milk from Johanna due to the possibility of Johanna poisoning it or something. So let's give our thoughts on this so far. We've got the priest coming to say a mass and pray with Bridget and give her communion. Mm -hmm. She's been accused of pulling the communion wafer out of her mouth, which is sacrilegious. She's been accused now also of rubbing a coin on her vagina. She has asked Johanna to bring her more milk, and Michael won't let her drink any. Um, I have a question. Is Johanna married? She is, or she's widowed. You never hear about her husband in this at all. Because I'm wondering if she has a thing for Michael. Could be. In the trial, she must still be married and her husband's still around because in the trial, she is holding a baby. Oh, She is carrying okay. a baby with her at the time. So it's unclear, like, she may be pregnant at this time or she may have a baby that's strapped to her and she's carrying around all the time. It never for mentions sure. the baby. Nobody ever testifies about the baby. But... Okay. During the trial, she does have one. So, yes, she's married. It is entirely possible she has a thing for Michael. Because, you know, jealousy, like you said, she was jealous. Uh, she was jealous of Bridget, which I believe that that, you know, could absolutely be true. And here's another thing. In that day and time, they, you know, they had a lot to think about. Mm hmm. They weren't, there weren't as near as many distractions. And that could be a positive thing. Like we have paved roads and automobiles and things mm-hmm. like that because people who had a lot of time to think. But it also, for those people who had some sort of mental illness or depression or anxiety or paranoia, you know, they could fill their thoughts with awful things. Right. And so, you know, she could have just been really consumed with some hatred and jealousy with Bridget. Yeah. And did those things. I, I think that that's completely plausible given the, the time frame of this. Yeah, it's it is an interesting scenario. What sticks with me and what is so concerning is that everything you say about that time period is accurate. Everybody's all up in everybody else's business. And now you, and they're very they're all very superstitious, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got a woman who is completely dependent on everyone to feed her help her nurse her back to health they're basically forcing her to defend <laughs> the fact yeah. that she's a human uh so yeah. it's I, my heart just breaks for this woman uh i know and it's so sad <clears throat> it is it's just anyway but uh, yeah but i do i do think that so i think johanna might just from what i'm reading here i, I think johanna might have some not so honest or sincere reasons for being there and helping. I think that I think you're Michael right. Michael is an idiot. Yeah. I think that Michael is an idiot. I think that he probably tr- – that or he is jealous of her as well because she was doing so well, which is unheard of mm-hmm. in that time, for women to be doing well. She had her egg business. She had her sewing business. Mm-hmm. She was doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. And so he was not the only breadwinner for them. And so that could be a sore spot for him that she was doing so sure. well. 
Yeah. Hurt pride. Uh, he could have been getting ribbed from the guys, you know, down at the slaughter mill or I don't know, wherever they go. <laughs> but, um, you know, that could be that could be it as well. So I think there's definitely some psychological stuff going on there that could oh. not be helping her right now. Unquestionably. Other than just the belief in fairies. And you've got some good insights on that. I hadn't even thought about Johanna being interested in Michael or jealous of Bridget and yeah. his relationship or whatever. But it seems like a lot of people yeah. resent Bridget for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever our thoughts on this may be, Bridget did say she wished Tom Smythe and David Hogan could be there. Okay. David Hogan and Tom Smythe are both plowmen. And it's interesting that Michael says, you can't have any milk right now. And she says, I wish Tom Smythe and David Hogan were here. They'd fix what's going on right now. Yeah. So at about eight o'clock that night, Johanna and Katie went to Tom's house and said Bridget was asking for him. Then they went on to David Hogan's house to let him know the same thing. And then all four of them returned to the cottage. Okay. So now we have the following in the cottage. Michael and Bridget Cleary, Johanna Mira. Mary Kennedy, Patrick Boland, Tom Smythe, David Hogan, and another neighbor, Patrick Leahy, who came for a visit as well. Because why not? Because why not? I mean, it's it's not like it's a, a sunny Sunday afternoon and that's a good time for a visit. Let's right. go when this woman is really ill and people are trying to kill her. And that's it's 8 p.m. Let's, let's go. And it's 8 p.m. <laughs> okay. Patrick Boland may not have been awake at the time. He had walked all the way to Killinall and back for Michael's father's wake. When Tom and David arrived at the house, Cleary took them into Bridget's room where Bridget was propped up on bed pillows. Here's Tom Smythe and David Hogan now, he said. Then Michael pulled out a flask, which he said contained holy water, and he told Bridget to drink it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Then after she had done that, he gave her some milk. Now, one has to wonder if he gave in about the milk because Bridget had summoned the two big plowmen because shortly after they arrived, Bridget was allowed to take a drink of milk after she drinks from the flask of holy water, alleged holy water. And I want it noted that alleged. I don't believe. Yeah, I don't believe for a minute that the flask contained holy water. I'm guessing Father Ryan didn't just hand that stuff out. My guess is right. that Michael put on a little show for the new very large guests and that their presence rendered him a little too intimidated to bully his wife. So I think yes. he's like, yeah, okay, if she, I tell you what, I'll back off. If she drinks this holy water, she can have something to drink. She can have some milk. I, I just hate this fucker. I really hate I him. <laughs> I do too. He is a fucker. He is a Good fucker. God. <sighs> okay, so after Bridget was given a drink of milk, the new guests, Tom and David, went out to sit by the fire. Michael followed along after them and said, As she had the company, his wife was going to get dressed herself and get up. She put on two petticoats, a skirt, a jacket, a shawl, and her shoes and stockings and let Michael lead her out to the front room where he put her on a chair close to the fire. Mary Kennedy said this. Tom Smythe asked her how was she, and she said she was middling, that he was making a fairy of her now, and an emergency. Which meant accusing her of being a changeling. Don't mind him, Bridgie, said I to her. Don't be that way. I sent Han, said she, for milk, and he wouldn't give me a drop of it, and I never asked for milk, said she, without buying it. So I told her to hold her tongue and not to be minding him, that it would be nothing, that she could drink it by and by. 
She said no more then. Okay, this is really important, like really, really, really important because that shilling is the thing that figuratively speaking gets Bridget close enough to fairyhood to warrant the actions that take her life. Johanna had told Michael earlier that Bridget had rubbed the shilling he gave her for the milk on her leg and Bridget denied this and a bit of an argument breaks out in front of Tom Smythe. During the trial, when he was asked if there was any talk of pishogs or charms or curses, Smythe said this. I believe there was. She said that she never got a bottle of milk or anything, but she paid for it. She asked Johanna Burke, did I give you the shilling? And Johanna Burke said not. Bridget Cleary repeated the question, and Johanna Burke denied it a second time. Bridget Cleary then said, thanks be to God. There's no use in me saying anything now, and there's no fissog. Piss hogs. <laughs> piss hogs. There's no piss hogs in me. Or something like that. This was a time of year when cows were calving. And superstition recommended that great precaution. That great precautions. <laughs> <laughs> piss hogs and precautions. God dang it. Uh, great precautions take place with regard to giving away milk or butter. Giving it away. Okay. Right. To give these things away would not occur, but asking for something and not paying for it could mean that, that you are a fairy tricking a farmer out of his goods. Bridget's questioning of Johanna and Johanna's denial that she received a shilling is a dangerous thing. It's possible Johanna only meant that Michael was the one who gave the shilling and not Bridget, but the group gathered at the cottage was likely raising an eyebrow at this conversation, and I'm guessing Bridget realized she was in a bit of danger by now. So th- we have milk being brought and Bridget says she had, you know, in in the trial, she says she had asked Johanna to go get milk. Johanna brought it back and Bridget paid for it. But Johanna doesn't testify to that. She says she never gave me another shilling. I didn't because she's got the one from Michael that she rubbed on her thigh Now there's another shilling that's taking place for milk. And Bridget's in front of witnesses saying, I gave you a shilling. And Johanna says, no, you didn't. So now everybody's, this is a huge social faux pas. If Bridget took milk and didn't pay for it, that's fairy business right there. She's cursing Johanna and she basically has rendered herself in great danger, which all seems so stupid. But she really was like, and she goes, well, there's nothing I can say now. There's no help for it. I'm screwed. Wow. Okay, so Bridget also mutters, They left me by myself on the road at Skihan's yard. This is also important. Last week I mentioned to Jen that Bridget had taken ill by a place nearby, which Jen naturally neglected to put in the script. Well, Jen can suck it. For sure. Because <laughs> the place was killing... killing the, see, now, now, it's, see, now it's karma, because now I have to pronounce this stupid word. Killing granada Kilin, Kyle Nagraga, Kyle Nagranag. I'm just going to sit back and watch you struggle. Flounder. I think it's, I think it's Kyle Nagrana, and it was on Skihan's land. So the fact that she mentions it again, concerning who left her, who left her alone there? Her family, the fairies. No one knows exactly what she meant by this, but it was a suspicious thing to say. So suck it. Jen. Exactly. I can suck it. So let's get into the nitty gritty. At about 11 o'clock that night, 
Oh, this is hard. Johanna Burke's brothers, Mary Kennedy's sons, got back from the wake going on for Michael's father. Shortly after they arrived, Smythe and Hogan left. After these two left, the brothers greeted Bridget and the family sat around the table. The people in the house at the time included Bridget and Michael Cleary, Patrick Boland, Mary Kennedy, Patrick Kennedy, William Kennedy, Michael Kennedy, James Kennedy, and Johanna and Katie Burke. Whew. That's more than I have at a dinner party. I know. And it's a tiny cottage. It's tiny. Okay. Mary thought that perhaps making tea would take the edge off of Michael Cleary, so she set out some bread and jam and set about getting water warm. Johanna later said that Michael and Bridget continued to argue over Peshogues or fairies at this time as well. Am I saying that right? I have no idea. You're You're doing very well. Okay, thank you. James Kennedy was tired after the walk to and from the wake, so he went to lie down on Patrick Boland's bed in the back bedroom. Patrick Kennedy and Patrick Boland each had a cup of tea, and then Patrick Kennedy went to lay down next to his brother to catch some sleep. Mary Kennedy went to lay down on Michael and Bridget's bed. This still left plenty of people in the kitchen with the couple. And then the shit hit the fan. Johanna said this, I made tea and offered Bridget Cleary a cup of it. Her husband got three bits of bread and jam and said she should eat them before she should take a sup. He asked her three times, Are you Bridget Cleary, my wife, in the name of God? She answered twice and ate two pieces of bread and jam. When she did not answer the third time, he forced her to eat the third bit, saying, If you won't take it, down you will go. He flung her on the ground, put his knee on her chest, one hand on her throat, and forced the bit of bread and jam down her throat, saying, Swallow it. Is it down? Is it down? Next, Michael got a glowing stick from the fire and held it next to Bridget's mouth, threatening to shove it down her throat if she didn't answer him. During her post-mortem exam, burn marks were noted on the inside of her lips. At this point, she called out for her cousin to help her, but Johanna sat there, watching. Yeah, so there's a bunch of people around the table just watching this happen. Next, Michael tore off all of her clothes except her chemise, which is like her slip, and left her there on the ground. Johanna testified that she heard Bridget's head hit the floor at one point, and then Bridget screamed. Michael still stood above her with the glowing stick, and in a matter of seconds, her slip was on fire. Now, she apparently didn't burn completely. Johanna said her head was sort of hanging down, and her eyes were closed. Michael said, Hannah, I believe she is dead. Then he picked up the oil lamp from the table, poured the paraffin all over Bridget, and lit her on fire. Johanna told the authorities that the rest of the family wanted to leave the house at this time, but Michael had the key to the door in his pocket and refused to let anyone leave. Instead, he kept the key and told them no one was going to leave until he got his wife back. And when the family protested, he held them at knife point, saying he'd run anyone through who tried to get past him. No one tackled Michael to get the knife away. No one approached him. It didn't take long for Bridget to burn up completely, or almost completely. The fire lasted only a minute or so, but flames shot clear across the room to just outside the bedroom, where the family had all backed up away and were huddled in fear. So Bridget's at the fireplace. So if you walk in the door, you walk right into the fireplace would be on the right side, table and chairs right in front of you. And then to the left is going to be where the bedroom is at. So everybody's backed away and Michael is standing over the body 
which is smoldering and stinking. And he's got the door can only be opened with a key. So the door is locked. No one can get out. And flames had shot clear across the room, kind of pushing everybody back in farther. So Michael yelled at the group, you are a dirty set. You would rather have her with the fairies and Kylan Agrana than have her here with me. Patrick Boland said this. If I can do anything to save my child, I will. Johanna said this. Cleary said he would bury her with her mother and that he would go to Kilinograph Fort on the following Sunday night. There he would see her riding on a white horse, and he said he would bring a knife to cut the straps with and rescue her from the fairies. Then he closed the door to the bedroom and apparently told everyone to stay put. Twenty minutes passed. And then Mary Kennedy opened the door to see what was happening in the kitchen. She said she saw him grab Bridget by the head, and he rolled her onto an old sheet. He then wrapped up the body and left it in the middle of the floor. Next, Michael left the house and locked everyone inside. The family came out of the bedroom and knelt over the body and then said the rosary, then went back to the bedroom and closed the door so Michael wouldn't know they had left. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. After about an hour, Michael returned and called out for Patrick Kennedy. Johanna said this. Crary came with the knife in his hand to the bedroom door and spoke through it. Are you there, Patsy Kennedy? Patrick, eldest of the brothers, made no reply. I'll call your name three times, and if you don't come to me and answer me, I'll drive the knife to the handle in through you, Crary said. Oh, Patsy, said his mother. Answer him, dear heart, or he'll stick you. Patrick Kennedy answered at last. Come on out here now, Cleary told him. I have the hole nearly made. As I could drive the devil out through the chimney, I'll drive him out through the door. So one thing is, he thought when he was lighting Bridget on fire that the fairy would finally come out of her and go up through the chimney. Right. And in his head, he thinks he's going to go to the fairy mound where she said she got sick and he's going to he's going to hide and he's going to see her riding on a horse, but she'll be tied to the horse. He's going to in his head, he's going to cut the strap, pull her from the horse, and then he'll have his wife back. So he seems to have gone completely off the deep end and really believes the fairy didn't cut, still didn't come out of this body and go up the chimney. So now we're going to go out through the door. So Cleary and Kennedy left together, keeping the door locked. So everybody stays locked in the house and they didn't come back until about five in the morning. And when they did, they had buried Bridget's body in an undisclosed location. But still, word of the happening spread pretty quickly, and it was clear by then that the cheese had completely slipped off of Michael's cracker, so everyone was arrested. I mean, it did not take long for this to come to light, and, you know, there was a, there were a lot of witnesses and a lot of people culpable in what happened to Bridget, so. For sure. Yeah, they Who all were sense. arrested, every single one of them. Uh, so yeah, John yeah. Dunn was not there, but he still got arrested and tried with the group. Wow. I know. Goodness sakes. Okay, so the trial took place on July 3rd, 1895 with the following defendants. Michael Cleary, Patrick Boland, Mary Kennedy, Jack Dunn, William Ahern, Patrick Kennedy, Michael Kennedy, James Kennedy, and William Kennedy. In the end, Michael Cleary was found guilty of manslaughter. Good God. Not murder. The rest were charged with having on March 14th unlawfully and maliciously wounded Bridget Cleary, a second charge of assault on Bridget Cleary occasioning her actual bodily harm was also brought against them. 
Now, Jack Dunn, like I said, hadn't even been present the night Bridget died, but the magistrate informed him his charges were from the night before when he helped hold Bridget down to administer the herbs in new milk. Good job, judge. Yeah. Okay, sentences were handed out. Patrick Kennedy got five years of penal servitude for helping get rid of the body. Jack Dunn received three years. James and William Kennedy each received a year and a half. Patrick Boland and Michael Kennedy each got six months. Mary Kennedy was allowed to go free. When it came to sentencing Michael Cleary, the judge was not lenient. The judge said this. I rest upon the fact that you inflicted on the woman whom you had taken to be your wedded wife and sworn before the altar to cherish and protect, that you took her life away by a form of cruelty which the fortitude of the martyrs has been found alone able to resist, and which is generally regarded as the most cruel and painful of human afflictions, by burning her alive. For dead she was not at the time you threw paraffin oil over her. Dead beyond a doubt she was not, and your wicked hand sent her to another world in the very prime of her life. The young woman confided to you her affections and her love, and you most wantonly and cruelly and bitterly betrayed her. Oh, I like this judge. It was obvious to everyone that the judge felt Michael Cleary to be guilty of murder and not manslaughter, but the jury's conviction stood. The judge sentenced Cleary to 20 years of penal servitude, which was the max he could do. Wow. All right. So let's talk Yeti scores. What do you think about fairies, Andy? Are they real? Are they not? Where do you stand on the Yeti score? I'm going to say I'm a one or a two. I'm very low. Very low. You believe not that I don't believe not that I don't believe at all. Not that they couldn't be real. I don't believe in this particular case that there was a fairy involved. I believe she was sick. Oh, yeah. And had a cold. But the lore that is so deeply embedded into that culture, I, I don't know. It's possible it could stem from, from something real. The wee folk? Yeah. I think I'm right there with you. I think that the possibility of wee folk or something akin to that exists. But clearly, I mean, clearly this was all this. A fairy, the fairy score, the Yeti score for Bridget being a fairy is zero. Zero, and for sure. I'm guessing Michael Cleary was an abuser from the get-go. Anybody who would treat a living being that the way he did, where he ripped off all her clothes, shoved a hot stick into her mouth in front of his family. I think he's an abuser. I think he yes. probably beat her on a regular basis. I think she she was very strong-minded and strong-willed and probably stood up for herself. But very I don't, independent. Yeah. I don't think that they had a happy marriage. I don't think so either. I also think he had grown up in the city. And I think I said this, may have said this last week. I'm not entirely convinced he believed in fairies to the extent he thought oh. he did or he said he did. Jack Dunn seems to have completely influenced Michael Cleary with saying things and like that's not Bridget or whatever. So I'm wondering if there's a little, you know, Michael clearly losing his shit because his dad died. He'd been up all night, not taking care of himself, instead trying to nurse his sick wife and probably reluctantly so, you know. So perhaps he just completely decided to fall off that, let go of the sanity rope and fall down the well of completely mental and say, yeah, okay, this isn't my wife. I need to bring her back. Or he just thought, this is a really good opportunity to get rid of her. I'm going with it. I don't know. Yeah, it could go either way. I don't know either. I, I, 
Yeah, I don't know. Because if he did, if he was in that, that situation and talking to all of those people that he was talking to, mm-hmm. I would I would think if he was faking it, something, or if he didn't really believe it, he just thought it was a ploy to get rid of her, somebody would have come forward. He would have slipped up and said something to somebody. I feel right. there were so many people there. I almost feel like he slipped off the edge of sanity. And here's the thing, too. I I still go back to, I liken this to Christianity. You know, there are people who believe very strongly in the rapture. Right. Or we'll say this, believe so strongly in God that they don't give their children medicine because they believe that God will heal them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I think people can get very wrapped up in their beliefs and that common sense. I'm just saying that people can get really wrapped up into stuff. and can kind of go a little mental about it, I think. I agree. So, the other thing that's yeah. interesting is the we have the religious aspect of this, right? We have them being very devout Catholics and the priest coming to her house twice, wants to give her the last rites and wants to do a mass for her and give her communion. And then you've got this completely pagan supernatural component of fairy belief and fairy lore, which they seem to have placed more stock in than their Catholic belief. Yes, yes, so very much so. It's just interesting the way everybody's minds ran away with this. And Yeah, wow, that, you're right. That's a good point. Yeah, it's uh, – and Johanna, for her part, testified against everybody. She got immunity. She basically was the the pig that squealed. So she got immunity and testified against all of her her brothers, her cousin-in-law. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So she's the one who testified against everybody. And she and her mother ended up not being implicated in that or not being charged with anything or charged but able to go free. Mary Kennedy was 69 at the time of the trial, at the time all this happened. And she was just devastated. She seemed to be someone who was always constantly trying to make peace and comfort Bridget. I think she genuinely cared about Bridget and wouldn't have stood up to Michael. But no, the, no, no, not in that time. Yeah. I, I what an asshole. Uh, I, that man, he got out of prison in like 1915. Well, good thing they didn't have any children. Yeah, exactly. And the book is really good. It gets in a lot more to the trial and the testimony. It's The Burning of Bridget Cleary by Angela Bourke. And I will put the link to getting that on the show notes on Buzzsprout for anybody who's interested in that. Well, yeah, very interesting story. So fairies, who knew, right? Well, as always, thank you for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what we'll be bringing you next week. We're going to be doing Banshees at some point in time, but I don't quite have all my source material for that yet. So... I can't tell you what next week's going to be, but we'll bring you something good for sure. It's a mystery box for sure. It's a mystery. It is. Yes. And thank you so much for listening. And feel free to reach out to us at jennandandy at ichabodshouse.com and um, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Ichabod's House Podcast. Until next week, remember Ichabod loves you. And bring a flashlight and always bring extra pants. (laughs) 